millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, how caring is our society? How has the economic model of capitalism impinged on our capacity for caring, even on a most basic level? Kathleen Lynch is a Professor Emeritus of Equality Studies in UCD and somebody who has a long track record in advocating for greater equality in our society. And let's face it, we have an unequal society, but I suppose the question is whether that is inevitable, a consequence of human nature, or the result of how exactly our political and economic cultures have evolved. Kathleen has now written a book, Care and Capitalism, which explores our relationships as a society with both care and capitalism. And to put it in its basic terms, it suggests ways in which we could be doing things much better. Just to give you a flavour of how some people regard this book, its analysis and conclusions, Michael W. Apple, who's a distinguished academic in both the US and China, has described it as one of the most significant books he has read in years. Kathleen Lynch, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kathleen, I suppose we'll start at the start. Why did you write the book? Well, I suppose there are a number of reasons I wrote it. And I suppose from your listener's point of view, the most important one would be that I believe that care is a huge site on which injustice occurs. I know that most people think of economic inequality and redistribution as central, which I do. But I have argued, I suppose, in the book, that economic inequality, political and cultural inequalities are very much tied up with care-related injustices. So that, I suppose, is people don't think of care work as a site of injustice, but it is fundamental in our society, and I can explain that later. The other reason I wrote it, I suppose, was uh, even when people think of alternatives, they always think in uh, what I call capitalocentric terms. They think of social change. Oh, how can we get change the economic model? They never think outside the box. And I have argued in the book for what I call care-centric thinking, a different way of looking at the world, a different way of thinking from the way in which we've been socialised in our contemporary society. So uh, the other reason, I suppose, is to bring and to show how the logic of care is completely different to the logic of capitalism and how it would alter what we do every day, how we relate to people, how we treat people, how we organise work, how we organise our personal lives. It became the ethic that dominated our lives rather than capitalism. So I suppose that was they were among the major reasons I wrote it. I think also because there are care crises throughout the world and in Ireland, childcare, care for older people, um, care for people with mental health issues. Uh, the issues in relation to care are pervasive for everybody, regardless of who they are. And we all need care at some time, no matter how powerful we are. All of us will die without care. So I suppose if bread and roses argument came from feminism, which is you need bread, you need food, you need money, but you also need to be loved and cared for or you won't survive. So I suppose I felt that economic thinking has been very dominated by what I call capitalocentric discourse. Even we'll say Marxist models or 
models that look at alternative social democratic models, they always start out as if the only thing that matters to people was power and money. Power and money matter, but people are not simply self-interested. They are also other interested. And all the, I've done a lot of studies in relation to care work and people in senior positions, people who've been carers, people who are cared for. And what you see is that people are very preoccupied with their care relations. They often give up work to take. They don't take promotion and they don't move house because they will lose their care networks. And this world, though, is invisible politically. As I said to you there in a note, I said it's soft politics. It's treated as, oh, sure, that's only matters to women. But it doesn't. Because if you think about it, when you're born, you will die without care. Humans are among the most dependent creatures on the earth. They live for a very long period of time in a state of dependency. And when we get old, if we live long enough, we become dependent. And in between, we've many times when we're highly dependent. But the concept of the person which underpins contemporary thinking and which is lionized in our political culture is independence, autonomy, and the power always of distance from other people. When in fact, we can't live like that. And we destroy one another and we destroy the world if we don't recognize our interdependence. So I wanted to put those issues out there into politics and to legitimate them, if you like. OK, very interesting. Um can I put it this way to you, Kathleen? Is it possible in your uh, view, in your vision of it, is it not possible to have capitalism but an elevated position for care within that on the basis I'm thinking here of in terms of people who suggest capitalism is required in order to improve standards of living um, and you can talk about elements of choice and that sort of thing. But is it not possible to elevate care within the model of capitalism that is there? You're right. Capitalism is not all evil. And I think it would be very naive to present that. Uh, but what I'm saying is it has its own morality. Let me just take two examples. Uh, it is governed by the principle of acquisition. And as you know, at a corporate level, by the principle of monopoly, which is, of course, uh, making sure that you maximize profit and gain for whatever your corporate entity is. At a personal level, it validates ambition and competition. It endorses this idea of the entrepreneurial individual and especially endorses competition as a virtue. So in that sense, it isn't just about its economy. Capitalism also creates a culture. And one of the points I'm making in the book is it creates new kinds of human beings, new subjectivities, where we expect to be mainly self-referential, to think of ourselves and that's very much part of the dominant culture. It's represented even in the metaphor of the iPhone, the iPad, to the metaphor of the eye that is embodied in those types of technology. So it is, I think, in those mindsets that it creates uh, at the culture level, it creates a mindset of indifference to those who are more vulnerable than yourselves, to those who can't compete. And that is very dangerous culturally because we leave a lot of the vulnerable people behind. And that means we leave a lot of ourselves behind because we're all vulnerable at some time. And at a cultural level, capitalism, I suppose this is a big issue now for the environment, it produces commodities uh, for the sake of producing them. Uh, for example, like 14 brands of shampoo are, you know, in ways uh, creating environmentally destructive patterns of consumption. The throwaway culture, 
throw away clothes, throw away uh, cups, throw away all kinds of material things that we use, which is destructive of the environment. And at the political level, it contributes uh, to the corrosion of democracy and community because those who are very wealthy, collectively and individually, can manipulate politics. They have the power to hugely influence the media and personal opinion. And the rising inequality that comes from that, of course, fuels uh, political discontent, terrorism and ultimately war. So and then at the nation state level, capitalism fuels war, conflict and militarism and imperialism as ways of consolidating monopolies of power in geopolitical ways. So what I'm saying is it isn't that it, it has the competition undoubtedly, you know, accelerates and encourages innovation, but it is huge. Uh, implications for the culture that we live, because it also creates new types of subjectivities, new types of people. What I said there to you when I was in my notes, I was preparing this idea of the actuarial self, where you start to think of yourself as a project and what risks and how you can avoid risk and how you can be an entrepreneur of yourself. People say, I'll do that for my CV. I'll do it because it's a line on my CV. Even if it's no purpose, it's because we are training our young people increasingly to think of themselves as an entrepreneurial project where they accumulate different types of cultural capital credentials, degrees, certifications. And I'm only saying when competition is so much part of it, it is part of life in a competition is inevitable in a a world of finite resources. But what capitalism has done is made it a virtue. So it is. it does, in that sense, like Hobbes says, it does encourage a war of all against all, where you start to think of yourself, ignore other people, look after your own family, don't mind other people, because that is what is to be rewarded. So I think that is the problem from a point of view of care, because you can't think in a care-centric way if you're constantly focused on what you're going to get for yourself. OK, but let me put another way to you, Kathleen. Within that model of capitalism, and some would have it neoliberalism, you have uh, extremes of the spectrum. For example, one could posit that you have the USA, which is an example very much along the lines of how you're describing it there. Yet you go to somewhere like some of the Northern European countries and there's far more a societal element to things and all of that. Yes, it's still the same model. It's just practised in different ways there. Yeah, but even the Northern European countries, if you look at their challenges they're facing in recent times, I know there have been back and forth, but there has been a huge increase in the pressure, for example, to commercialise care services, public services that were once offered by the state. There has been huge pressure because, in a sense, they are islands um, and very relatively successful islands of success in the way that they have managed to, if you like, manage and control capitalism. But that is not the norm throughout the world. As you know, most countries throughout the world have no welfare state. Most people have no means. They are entirely dependent on their families if they have nobody else to provide for them in their old age. The Northern European model of welfare that we have is is a tiny, tiny, minuscule model by comparison with the power of global capitalism. So I'm not saying that you can't do it differently because there are the varieties of capitalism argument. But the ethics of capitalism, what I'm saying, is the one that pervades. And it is so powerful because, of course, if you take... 
public culture, take uh, the media, take, in fact, consciousness. I don't know if that book, the uh, surveillance of, of uh, age of surveillance in capitalism by a woman, Shoshana Vubok. It shows you how you create mindsets whereby being competing against yourself, competing against other people, getting a better car, better house, better job, better everything, that that becomes a measure of your human worth. And that is a very destructive way to organise society because people then just think of that as virtue. And we have changed the definition of virtue in that cultural milieu. And this isn't to say that everybody subscribes to this, but all I'm saying is, a care-centric way of thinking says, well, is that the way we should organise life? Why would we organise life like that? Can we educate people to cooperate? And in the book, I give numerous examples of, uh, you know, successful. You talked about cooperative ventures, like I mentioned. The Mondragon region, 89,000 people employed since the 1950s in worker-owner cooperatives. You have huge number of cooperatives in Desjardins, in Canada, the cooperative banks, which has been there for a very long time. Indeed, I believe the Irish credit unions went there originally, but uh, we never created the equivalent type of cooperative-owned uh, banking that way they have there. So there are models that exist, but they are always struggling to survive in a, in a, in a world order in which the ethic of profit and gain and particularly culturally embedded pro concepts like competition and aggrandizement and self-entrepreneurialism become so pervasive. And I think I said in the book as well, it's reflected in this fixation on measurement. Everybody is measured. You know, your key performance indicators, everybody becomes a metric. You become an accumulation of metrics. How well is your three-month-old baby doing? Is it doing better than your neighbor's three-month-old baby? I mean, how well are you performing? So metricization is a correlate of this kind of culture of constant competition. And therefore, everybody is in a kind of anxiety to see how are they performing? Am I doing as well as somebody else? Now, there's always competition in life. I'm not saying that. But all I'm saying is we have normalized it to the degree that it now has become pervasive in every area of life. Your body mass index, your color of your hair, you know, have you upgraded your face? Have you constantly, constantly monitoring yourself? Your performance at work is everything is monitored. You're counted the amount of time you're online. Everything is counted. And there's a tyranny in that numerical ordering of people, which because some people are bound to fail. And that in the book, I write about the myth of meritocracy, because, of course, you know, people wonder, you know, why the likes of Trump or those get into power. Well, many in a so-called meritocratic society, which is not really meritocratic, because, as you know, and I know, most people who have a lot of resources at their disposal can buy more time. They can buy time in education. They can send their children constantly repeating exams and going to different colleges and they will eventually get into positions of power and authority. So those who don't succeed, of course, of whom there are many, relatively speaking, in this world order, have a sense of total uselessness. They feel they don't count. They feel they haven't got third level education. Nobody listens to them. Their opinions don't matter. They're called rednecks. They're called cultures. They're called people who don't know anything. And I think that devaluation that comes with that intense competitiveness is reflected in the devaluation of people, for example, who do manual work, something that people well, I was reared in a farm. I have great respect for manual work and I do a lot of it even still. But like we don't appreciate that that matters in and of itself because it's all about 
competition, the hierarchy, where you stand, where you're going, what you should become. Uh, so from that point of view, I suppose what I'm saying is capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, and it is a particular variety that we have at the moment, of course, I should say. It is not mercantilism. It's not noblesse oblige for the feudal system where people are looking after others and think that there's a moral obligation to do so. It's not part of the narrative of neoliberal capitalism. It is about gaining power, gaining money and gaining competitive advantage. And what I'm saying is that has been encoded increasing in, in within us culturally. And that is politically very dangerous because it means something that was usually we know the male culture that was in Ireland for all its faults and failings. And I wouldn't romanticize it was one where we recognized our interdependency. We recognize that we can't live without the help of other people. But if you create a culture where everybody feels that they can and should be self-reliant, then you create a culture of indifference. Because there will always be people who will not be able to be self-reliant, including many of us ourselves, at a time in the future where we may not know. Yeah, very true. It's just, it just occurred to me, Dale, where you were speaking, Kathleen. Just one example of what you were talking about, a great friend of this podcast, Alice Leahy, is somebody who has often spoken about how the business of uh, people who are living on the streets, how they have to go through such bureaucracy and that kind of thing now in order to just get a place to live and where they have to deal with uh, faceless bureaucrats, etc., rather than the human touch. And I suppose at the very ground level, that's an example to some extent of the kind of thing you're talking about and how that has evolved over the year as that form of capitalism perhaps has taken a greater hold. But on a similar vein, the other thing that occurs to me, Kathleen, is the only alternative to that model in its most basic form that has been experienced is communism. And that threw up issues, I'd suggest, about human nature and uh, human beings' capacity to... Um, suppress, if you want to put it that way, that competitive instinct or whatever as well. I mean, so is is there another way? Well, I suppose I think that um, we can run businesses cooperatively. It's difficult. And I mean, there's a lot written about cooperatives. I mean, really, uh, let me talk about business. I'm talking about worker owner cooperatives uh, that are where people own and control the business themselves. And there are no shareholders beyond those who work in the business. Very big factor. That does exist. It has existed since the 1950s in Mondragon. And there are numerous examples of, in northern Italy, where in Villa Romagna, there is uh, numerous cooperatives that built on those premises. Now, they are islands in a sea of capitalism. There's no question about that. But you might say, why have they not been generalised? Well, the competition is pretty intense. And you take our own country. We held, we made a presentation to the Joint Directors Committee on this in 2012, 10 years ago, when we all, a group of us visited Mondragon. We proposed that the state set up a model and a unit in the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment to establish worker-owner cooperatives and indigenous industries, which would actually be built around this whole principle. Nothing has happened. Absolutely, you can't even properly set up uh, you do have them in Scotland. You even have, a, I think, a version of Northern Ireland and in Wales. We don't have anything here. So Ireland is behind the times. And I think that I wouldn't romanticise it. Cooperating with people is very difficult. But I still think it is about where we don't allow the work that we do to produce goods for whom people gain an inordinate benefit and become extremely rich 
based on exploitation or, let us say, overpay for the work of other people, the work that other people do. And I mean, in Mondragon, there is a limit to what we say the chief executive can earn of the bank. There is a bank in Mondragon. And it was a few years ago anyway, when we were there, it was about five and a half times what the lowest employee could earn. And here, as you know, a chief executive of the big companies now earn 100, 200 times. And we have a stratification of that. And we have accepted it as we've normalized it. Now, I'm now saying that people, when that becomes the culture, that's what you expect. That's what people won't work for anything less. People will leave. They'll say, I'm not going to work for you because I can get 100 times the salary of the average worker. So that is the reality. And I'm not saying that that's be easily overcome. But there are ways of doing it and they have been achieved. Maybe not at the political level because nation states haven't uh, um, kind of endorsed that. Although Japan did actually after the war, I think a lot of people may not realise that after it was uh, the Second World War, it did in a lot of its big corporations have a five to one, four and a half to one ratio for the chief executives vis-a-vis other workers. And many would say it helped revive the economy at that time and create new solidarities. So it isn't that it's impossible. I'm not saying, but I think what we're looking at now is creating a culture because a culture, as you've just said, doesn't just apply in business. The mentality often applies, I have sad to say, in the attitude of people who provide public services. You know, you're the undeserving person who's looking for a house. Why didn't you get your own house? You're the undeserving person who's coming in to get your social welfare especially if you're not old. There are the people we regard as legitimately dependent, but it's very hard to be an adult. There's no almost moral recognition of the reality of adult dependency unless you are very old or unless you're sick, unless you have a very significant disability. And so there is a judgmentalism that comes with it, which pervades a lot of you spoke about the bureaucracy of our services. In fact, my own view is that people who employed, and I always argued this in the university, in public services require a separate training to people who, and in voluntary and community services, from people who are working in business. You would need to be educated to be a public servant because it is not the same. You are providing, and I used to always say in the universities, we are public servants. We are funded by the people to serve the people. And that is a different mentality. But what I'm saying is the culture of this competition, careerism, etc. When that becomes pervasive, uh, it basically pervades every area of life. It pervades the household, it pervades the family, it pervades the way in which we offer public services. And the attitude of a lot of the professionals, etc. within those services, who think of themselves in terms of their entitlement and their entitlement to high wages and high salaries, irrespective of whether or not, you know, the, the hospital or whatever it is can afford them. So it is a mindset that has been developed. And I suppose what I feel about education is that in many ways we have not challenged that mindset at all. And that's what I'm working on now, I suppose, another book around this whole idea. How do you educate people to think in a different way? And how, like, take exams, very practical things. From the moment you enter school, you are rewarded for your own success. You are rewarded for getting high points or even in junior instance, you get stars or whatever it is you get. And you're constantly, constantly thinking of yourself. And people are often surprised when young people leave school or college and they say, oh, they're so self-centered. Why would they be otherwise? They've spent their entire time focused on their own career. 
That's what they're rewarded for. The grades they get, the recognition they get, whether or not they what job they go into is dependent on their individual achievement. They are not graded for their cooperation. They are not. We don't have many joint projects. You're not expected, for example, to show how you can collaborate, what you would learn and how you would do things differently. We don't have that culture. And with nor do most countries have that culture. So I do think it's about a very different mode of educating people. And even when we were in uh, Mondragon, that was one of the issues that the people mentioned to us. They started their own university built on cooperation and around building up businesses cooperatively because mainstream education doesn't teach people how to do that. It doesn't teach people to cooperate. It teaches you to achieve high grades for yourself, for yourself and to gain that competitive advantage vis-a-vis other individuals. So that I don't think we realise how pervasive that is culturally how absolutely normalised it is. And in fact, when you say something like I'm saying, people think you're crazy. Because even in the universities, when you try to get students to cooperate with one another, to do joint projects, there's huge resistance because they know that they might get higher grades themselves and they will benefit more themselves. And there is a resistance to doing it, not everybody, but among many. So I'm just saying we need a very different way of educating human beings to be to live in the world because the world is a finite place with finite resources and if we don't have a cooperation we will destroy ourselves and destroy other people. We're doing it already even in terms of the environment. To know what's really happening subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Arguably, uh, Kathleen, the nature of education these days has gone down a direction where rather than even on a basic level, uh, people getting a broad education, it's more directed towards the jobs market specifically, which is going in the opposite direction to what you're suggesting. Well, I wouldn't say, in fact, I'd say, no, what I'm saying is it feeds into that jobs market very directly. It's about the acquiring of capitals for particular jobs critical thinking, reflection. But even if you take the job market, as you say, it is about acquiring very specific credentials for that. And I don't blame people for doing that. I don't say you don't need specific credentials. Of course you do certify that people are competent. But what I'm talking about is the mindset that goes with it. It is a mindset that thinks always of how, in terms of personal gain, it th- thinks you are socialized and educated to think, OK, I get more, more, you know, more money, more status, more power. Of course, people want those. But people are want also emotional and love security. They do. And you find, uh, like, if you look at a lot of people's lives or where there are mental health issues, often people have a seer care deprivations 
serious care deprivations in their lives from all kinds of different reasons. And I just think that when you look at those areas of life and you think, well, if you only focus education on our, all our time in school and in college or wherever we go, apprenticeship or otherwise, if it's only focused always on what you can gain, well, then you will only think of all your human relationships in transactional terms. What can I get out of this transaction? That's all that matters. What can I personally get out of it? Well, it would strike me that what you're talking about, that kind of change of a mindset, is unfortunately a very long-term project and most likely the only place you can start is in education because for most people, changing that mindset when they get into adulthood, middle age, etc. is so much more difficult. Is it something that should be specifically orientated towards our education system in the first instance in a very concentrated way? Well, what I'm saying is, I suppose there is a view out there that if you can teach critical thinking, I'm a bit sceptical of that, having researched and studied education over many years. You can, in the sense, it can become like a layer of icing on the top of a cake, in the sense that people will be aware of what's involved, but it won't feed down into anything that they do. You can have a lot of people who will be well able to espouse critical theory and critical thinking from philosophy, and they might be as indifferent to other people as anybody else. And what I'm saying is we need to practice. Education needs to be involved in practice, not just in theory. And that would be a very different type of education where you would. And I mean, to some degree, there is some element of that in the new social um, uh, politics and society subject in the Leaving Cert, where you're required to do engage in some community practice. You're required to demonstrate something in the form of action uh, to show that you don't just know it theoretically, but you know it practically. And I do believe that that is something that we need to do. We have to and to evaluate people for that practice, not just to teach them about it in an abstract way. That's what I'm saying. Teaching somebody about something in an abstract way, it doesn't mean that they embody it because in order to learn or to something, you need to embody it and you need to feel it, not just know it intellectually. And that's through practice, not just through theory. Is there anything that gives you optimism? I'm very optimistic, actually. I do believe that people will, because most people are good, you know, most people are basically kind and considerate of others. But if we like create a society or a social political system where we don't reward people for that, and if we punish them for being considerate, then people feel they're fools and they don't want to do that. So I actually think it's about creating cultural milieu where to reward people for the kind of activities that I'm talking about for caring for others, where you're not punished for being a carer, for example. At the moment, if you're a full-time carer, as you know, especially of people with high dependency needs, there is no real consideration of you. You are not taken seriously. It is there you don't have enough to live on, you don't have enough care services. Everybody knows that people who are very old and vulnerable and who are very ill, especially if they're cared for at home, need an awful lot of care. But we don't have those services because we don't take it seriously. Because we assume that women, mostly, sometimes men, mostly women, will do it for nothing. Because it doesn't count. And that's what I say in the book, that care is not a citizenship defining activity. It's not the thing that people who are powerful in society ever want to do. 
because it's not defined as something that is really worthwhile. Whereas, in fact, the whole of society, as we saw in the pandemic, would fall apart if people, first of all, most people couldn't work. They wouldn't be able to work. They wouldn't be able to go out of their houses because who's going to mind highly dependent babies and children and people who are unwell? So it's the layer and infrastructure of our society. And I feel that that care work uh, where it required, you know, full time or part time or whatever should be recognised as central to human existence. But it also I talk a lot in the book about time. Uh, care is, 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 is greedy of time and so is capitalism. Making a career, so-called career, means often that you sacrifice the time to give to those who need your care to something else. And that is a very big problem in our society where you are expected to do so. It's so normalized. You don't have to be there. As I said, you give love to care to people in your leftover time when you're exhausted at the end of the day. And it and so the activity of paid care is badly paid. The people who do it in families and households are not recognized and fully re rewarded for it. And even in people's impersonal lives, people who are adults who are not dependent, even their own intimate relationships often, they don't realize that that takes time. And time is a huge resource. We are finite, not just materially, but also time-wise in this earth. Absolutely. Um just to finish, Kathleen, on a personal note, you dedicated the book to the memory of your mother, uh, Molly Nylan Lynch, who, as you put it, and I love this, loved and cared for so many throughout her long life of 104 years. She certainly had a long life. Yeah, Molly Nealan Lynch, Nealan. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was quiet woman, you know. But I always told her that I would. I didn't have time most of the time to write a book that I would dedicate to her. But when, unfortunately, she died before I had the book written, but I wanted to dedicate her to people like her, these invisible women who do all this care work, whether it's care of the land, care of their family, their neighbours. There are so many, not all women, but mostly women, who are completely invisible. And I believe they're politically very important people. And without them, most of us would not have either the emotional security or the personal sense of self. Uh, to do things we do without their love and care. Absolutely. Uh, the book is called Care and Capitalism by Kathleen Lynch and it's published by Polity Press. Kathleen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Mick, for having me. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening and we'll talk again soon. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.